We're proud to have this episode sponsored by ShakePay, the easiest way for Canadians to buy and earn Bitcoin. I love using ShakePay because it's fast, it's easy, the app is great, and it doesn't hurt that they give away free sats, which is free Bitcoin every day just for shaking your phone. They also have the ShakePay prepaid Visa card issued by People's Trust that earns you up to 2% cash back in Bitcoin. Not points you have to redeem, just Bitcoin added to your account automatically. Like I said, ShakePay really is the easiest way for Canadians to buy and earn Bitcoin. So join the over 1 million Canadians already on ShakePay. Sign up is fast and free. It's so easy, a boomer can do it. Plus, sign up for ShakePay with the promo code LOONIEHOUR and you'll receive $10 after you buy your first $100 worth of Bitcoin. That's promo code LOONIEHOUR. Thank you, ShakePay. Now back to the show. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. You have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We're just going to get a key from the background. Hey, there's a bubble. thing on oh there we go thanks everyone for coming out appreciate it i think apparently we're told the ac is in the process of being turned on <laughs> i prepared right check <laughs> so you guys have some uh bingo cards there i think there's gonna be some like uh hello things at the end to to pass around and some we'll do some q a at the end and uh yeah like i said we really appreciate you know the support the community that we're growing here it's uh you know we we think that we're trying to sort of you know we talked about a de democratize finance uh you know we've got a whole host of different people here uh from all backgrounds and it's really cool to see um so thank you thanks for everybody coming here it's very bright i did prepare you'll note unlike keith um <laughs> um Thank you, by the way, to Megan, who gave us tickets last night for the hockey game, went to the Leafs game. Leafs won, which is not good, but the, um, <laughs> noted Leafs, uh, Habs, the Leafs hater, noted Habs fan. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for Megan. I don't think she's here tonight, but we really, really appreciate it. That was a very, very generous gift. We expect um, some sporting event gift or memorabilia from all of you at one point. Uh, <laughs> interesting atmosphere at the Leafs game, yeah, it was by an the interesting way. <laughs> This guy was the loudest guy at the game by far. Um, people don't seem to cheer at the Leafs games. I guess there's not much to cheer about. They have, a, they have, a, they have an amazing team. This is why I was so mystified, really. But anyway, we're not going to throw an entire city under the bus. We'll wait until the Q&A for that. All right, All right shall we? we? One sec. You got anything to say, Keith? I do. So last night, so these these guys go to the hockey game. They're drinking Tim Hortons and stuff like that. I decided to go party crashing. So I uh, I don't know too many people in, in Toronto, but uh, so I went to uh, a place called Reds. Anyone here know Reds? Peter K. Peter K. must know Reds. Where's Peter K? 
There he is in the back. So I, I go there, and uh, there are two private parties taking place. There was one for this gentleman. I think it was like Bruce somebody. He was retiring with uh, one of the government agencies. So I quickly decided that's not the party I want to go into. So instead, there was another one hosted by an insurance association, which I thought was great because they, they like risk. That, that's what the insurance guys do. So I popped into the, uh, the insurance party and I, had, I made some friends. And that's what I did last night. That's my night in Toronto. You went to bed at nine. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Me and Rich were at the bar. We wanted to bail the, on the game, and <laughs> Keith is already asleep. Anyway, yeah, right. well, we'll jump into it. Last thing, Barry, thank you for the uh, Barry from Winnipeg. Thank you for the Twinkie shirt. Uh, we we need we do need a sponsorship from from Twinkie, but at some do point you, I need it. I have to eat a Twinkie tonight. Yes, we have a box. Shake pay. Okay. We'll get it later. I'll eat that later. I'll, he I'll owes us it. one. Yeah. Okay. We can't let him leave without it. All right. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Shall we? Yeah. Oh, welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 60. As always, joined by the three amigos. We've got Rich Diaz of Acorn Macro Consulting and Keith Dicker of Icecap Asset Management and yours truly. Um, you know, lot, lots going on as always. Um, you know, we always have to start things off given that we're in, uh, the GTA, everyone's favorite real estate market. We'll, we'll start things off with the housing market. Uh, so we got some, some data here. I, I saved it from tweeting specifically for the show. I said, I'm going to release this bit of data just for the show. Uh, so you guys are the first to have it, but the, uh, GTA, uh, home sales for the month of November, they just came out, uh, at least to, to me, John Pasalis, who's in the crowd, probably has the data too. Um, GTA home sales down 54%, lowest since 2008. Uh, Greater Vancouver home sales down 53%. Uh, other than 2018 and 2008, uh, the lowest in 20 years. So, we just missed 2018, which was actually, if you look at 2018, that was the fewest home sales in Greater Vancouver for, for the entire year, for an 18-year low. So we're kind of comparing, I think, two very horrible years for, for housing, bear markets, really. Um, God's country, Calgary, uh, sales down 20% year over year, uh, but actually on pace. On Calgary? Calgary. Oh down 20%, but on pace to have their best year still. record. They're going to have a record year. So low volumes, but decent price appreciation. I mean, low volumes year over year, yeah. yes. Okay. Uh, I mean, price appreciation at this point is tapped out. It's 6% mortgage rates, nothing works, right? right. So, uh, but that, there you have it. I think like, you know, the housing market, GTA and Vancouver continue to, to struggle. I think we're still in this bear market. Uh, again, sales volumes at sort of these crisis level lows. And with that, we've had You've been watching it pretty closely, the Canadian banks reporting. Uh, so I don't know if you want to chat sort of on on what you're seeing from them. I think we had TD and CIBC out today. We had uh, RBC the other day. How are you looking at that? Well, one thing I love about, you know, here in Toronto, and you guys may not realize it, or you do, we're sitting on the foundation of the Canadian banking system here. So that you, everyone, they all have regulatory capital. It's you go into the RBC Plaza. It, it's down there if you look. Um, maybe not CRBC too much today because they were they were down quite hard. I think right after their earnings. I didn't see it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but um, 
So we, what we like to talk about is the economy, which way is it moving or not moving? Have we reached a, a, a turning point yet? So you're talking about real estate. Have we reached that trough? And uh, one thing I'd love to look at are, are the bank's earnings. So when the bank's earnings come out, they're always going to be reported in a way that it's always positive, no matter what. That's what they'll try to do. But if you start looking in at the data, you can really figure out, okay, what, what are the banks seeing and what are they not seeing? So I, I think between today and yesterday, uh, I think all five of the six of the big banks, five plus one, I guess, are the big banks, they all reported earnings. And uh, what was really interesting, what I like to look at is, is what's happening with their loan portfolios. So b because these banks lend out money all over the country, they're lending it to us to buy houses, they're doing credit cards, lines of credit, and they're doing um, like small business banking and stuff like that. B because there's always an, a probability that someone won't pay their loan back, that every quarter they have to take an accounting charge for that. And it's called, uh, you know, provision for credit losses or non-performing loans, whatever term you want to use. And uh, so if you know your income statements, it, it comes across the income statement and they'll do it. So they're trying to guess what will the losses be if things continue to get better or worse. So when they came out today, what I wanted to look at, okay, what what is the level? And the two things that really stood out. So first of all, if you go back over the last six quarters, we, we've seen the banks do a complete 180. So six quarters ago, banks were taking negative charges for bad loans. So what that means is they were saying, well, no one is not going, that's a double negative, right, Rich? That doesn't work. No, I was just laughing at the banks are always just yeah. those, those shenanigans. So six six quarters ago, the banks were anticipating that everyone we've lent money to, they're going to pay it back. Plus, people who we thought were never going to pay back their loans, they're actually going to become financially healthy again and pay back. So they had negative numbers in there for their loan losses. Now, six quarters later, they're ramping up these losses very aggressively. So that, that catches your eye, because we keep talking all the time, is the economy declining? And we want to know that, yes or no, because it will affect you know, what's going to happen in, in the bond market, especially. And uh, so we have that happen. And then the other, you know, the great, I guess, uh, view to see with it. Now, I sent it out on, on Twitter earlier today. So I showed the, I think it was like a 12-year chart for uh, Bank of Montreal and, and uh, Royal Bank. I, I just chose two of them randomly. It was no specific reason. But on, now, on those charts, you can see what their loan loss provisioning has been every single year over the last 10 plus years. So even though they've now ramped up their loan loss provisioning aggressively for this, this last quarter, they're still at the same level as what they've averaged over the previous 10 years. So why I just love that is because if you look at what happened the previous 10 years before COVID, it, it was fine. Like there was nothing bad happening in anywhere really in, in the world. Uh, Europe. Where? Europe. Europe. Is that a bingo? <laughs> it's not quite. We're almost there. We're almost there. We'll, <laughs> we'll get there. But my point is that we've had 10 years in the Canadian economy where, you know, things were okay and loan loss provisioning or you know, reached this high on, on a chart. Then all of a sudden, you know, we, we have the pandemic, the COVID response. Now we get like the inflation response and the amount of money the banks are provisioning. It, it's almost identical to what they were provisioning back during when times were really good. So now, of course, you know, they're lending out more money than before. So I just look at this and I know that 
if we do hit a soft landing with the economy coming up in 23, um, the banks, they'll work their way through it. They will have to do a few more provisioning on the on the loss side. But if if it is a hard landing or not as soft, then it, it, it is going to be a bit tricky. So, um, you know, the last couple of days, we I think we've seen a lot of people having their holiday parties, bonuses. We used to call it Bonio. What do you guys call it? No. Did Rich ever get a bonus growing up? A bonio? A bonio? Bonio, a bonus. I, I, yeah. This is, I mean, this is, you didn't so I don't know that. if that's PG or... Bonio. No, it was bonus, but <laughs> the point is a lot of bonus have been paid out now for, for, for the your, year. Is that your pickup line? Mrs. Icecat back in the day. Good, yeah. a big bonio. <laughs> you get more bonus, but bonus, like, this, this could be the last... Bonus, you know, where people are getting paid a lot. So even like the <laughs> growth in bonuses are higher. Bonio. But the point is, we 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 are potentially headed heading into a softer economy coming up. And again, we talk about a recession is coming, but you know, here in Toronto, I don't see a recession. It's it's just booming out yeah. there. But that's what I see. But the bank's earnings today were, were incredibly important. But look beyond the headline numbers to say, you know, bank ABC beat estimates. Don't worry about that. Look underneath at, at the earnings numbers. The only thing I have to add is I paid more attention to the U.S. housing and banking sector. Um, there's a lot of people who are obsessed with the U.S. housing market going to fall 20%. It's not really clear that that's true. I think people who've listened to the podcast know why. I think that's Vacancy rates, less supply, less build up in into the start of this cycle, less debt to GDP, lower debt service costs, etc. But what I did notice was the similar thing that Keith is talking about. In the U.S., they call it lo- uh, allowances for loan for losses on loans and leases. Lots of L's there. And um, you know, in two thousand, the, the series doesn't go back that far. Unfortunately, in two thousand ten, it peaked at two percent of total assets. And then it, I think it bottomed at 0.7 or whatever the number is. But the key thing, as Keith is referencing, is it's not, a, it's not about necessarily the levels, for me anyways. It's about inflection points and changes. And, and that's, I've, even though I think the U.S. banking sector is probably healthier than probably maybe any banking sector in the world, and certainly healthier than it was in 2008, you can see this little fish hook at the bottom going up. And so even though I think there's as much weakness to be expected in, in the U.S. housing market, or even the banks, even they are starting to say, hey, there's something, we're worried a little bit. Now the question really is, are banks lagging or leading? Are they, are, they, are they not necessarily revealing how afraid they really are? That's probably true in Canada, maybe less true in the US. I don't know. Well, I mean, they're basically provisioning, in your opinion and per your words, it's a, a soft landing, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, I think still looking at the housing market, things can change and a lot of that's going to depend on the trajectory of interest rates, right? If mortgage rates are stay at 6%, I think, for a longer period of time. I think we're going to have more issues. The issues that we've highlighted in the housing front is the alternative lending side, uh, people that are on variable rate mortgages that are struggling that, you know, they're yes, they're cutting spending elsewhere to make their payment, but is that sustainable for, you know, six months, 12 months, 18 months? I think that's when you start to see I think maybe more pain, more declines in the housing market. Uh, we know the pre-sale market as well. You know, you bought a pre-sale two, two and a half years ago when rates were at two and a half percent, and now you got to get a stress test mortgage at seven and a half percent. Can you qualify? And there's not any liquidity in the assignment market. So I think there's still like dominant. I think there's 
like our job, I feel like our job is like, we don't, you know, we can't have a crystal ball, but it's to like highlight potential risks. And for me, anyways, the potential risk in the housing market are still those two, which I think they are a bigger problem in sort of the middle parts of next year. But you're also sugarcoating it, right? There's like, there's been a bonanza. Let's, let's, let's like not, you know, pull any punches here. I think you showed me a chart the other day, which was the 10 year increase in house prices for developed countries. And I think the only country that had a higher increase over 10 years was New Zealand. And in some cases, some markets, we all know this. I mean, this, I'm, you know, this is not a particularly enlightening point, but it's been, an, and it's whether you look at OECD, you know, house price to income, house price to rent, different ways that you can measure the degree to which house housing markets are stretched. We know that Canada is the top of the table. The big problem is the debt burdens. And so, and that's, I think we don't debt to GDP in the households is a hundred and 105, depending on who's calculated and when and whatever. It's very high. In the US, it's 30%, 30 points less. And that's, that's leverage is a son of a bitch, you know, it's like, it's, it really, it helps you on the way up and people make lots of money, you know, riding this wave, but on the way, on the way down, when interest rates go up, it, it really hurts. I think it's important to point out though, too, we've had a bunch of comments in the last few days in particular, asking us to comment on the Canadian bank because they're talking about their earnings and stuff like that. You don't need to rush out and like pull your money out of the Canadian right. bank. Everyone's like, I, I need to try pull out all my money. They're, the bank's safe. There's a hundred thousand dollars CDIC insurance. It's like they're going to be fine. The housing market's going to go through a tough time. The banks are going to get hit a bit. Some people will lose their shirts, but I think the question we got from a client, uh, not client, excuse me, uh, from a listener, and and we're really grateful by the way for all of the positive um, feedback. We're not so grateful for all the negative feedback. <laughs> But people send us questions all the time. We try our best to answer them uh, within our regulatory <laughs> restrictions, of course. But I, I, I mean, maybe this is famous last word, but I don't think we're going to have a 1930s style bank run in Canada. Jinxed it. <laughs> I just jinxed it. I also think it's important that we learn from history, which is we know that governments will bail out banks. If we've learned nothing from the last 20 years, that, that's true. So. Go ahead. So I experienced a, a bit of a mini bank run a few years ago. So I was working offshore and uh, the bank I worked for, we, we struggled. So there, our, our balance sheet was stuffed with all the, the stuff they made, the, the movie and then the book about. And uh, it's a small island and then the rumors start to you know, squirrel around pretty, pretty quickly. And uh, one day I, I heard, uh, I was up on the main part of the bank and they, they always open the, the bank at like 9 a.m. or something like that. And when they do all the security guards, like they open all the doors at the same time or around the building. And they always say, uh, they did the walkie talkie and they go, showtime. And they, and people come, you know, walking in slowly to, to do their banking. Except this one morning, you know, their people are lined up outside and this one guy, he's up against the door and he's pounding it with two fists, bang, bang, bang. And he's yelling, open the bank, open the bank. And the way they open a bank, this guy sprints into the teller. He yanked out all of his money. And then he literally ran down the road to, to the next bank, which, of course, was also affected by the same the same problems that were happening. Mrs. Icecap was at the other bank, <laughs> pounding on the door. That reminds me of a great Simpsons episode when Bart, uh, when the, spring, the Springfield Elementary School teachers go on strike and then Bart just is messing around. He goes to the bank and says, what do you mean the bank is out of money? And then <laughs> they've only got money for two tellers, two customers, and then they start fighting. Bank runs are not going to happen in this country. Okay, but one I want to go back now to the, the economy and what might happen here. And so, Steve, you can, you can yeah. comment on this because it might be like, will the, will the hard landing happen from 
short-term rates going up further. So the Bank of Canada are coming out next week. So we're going to do, we're going to do a Twinkie bet today. So they come out next Wednesday. This is Thursday, by the way. So we're doing this on Thursday. It's <laughs> a freebie Bingo. right there. Yeah. And um, but will the will the slowdown be triggered by rates going up further? Because you you've talked quite a bit, Steve, about people having triggered trigger rates happening on under variable rate mortgages, or does it happen from the economy slowing with with job losses that are coming up? There's a third. There's so, a third one. They what? There's a third alternative. What's the third one? The reset. But anyway, keep going. I don't know the third one. Well, once you know that once you have the short term rates go up and you like survive that little wobble, and then eventually all these people who have these two and three year mortgage fixed mortgage rates have to reset. And if interest rates are still high, I know it's related to the first one, but it's slightly different. Sorry, I've lost my train of thought. You can do it, Boomer. Come on, <laughs> string it together. So, but we, you know that the problem is Bank of Canada. They know the immediate effect when they raise rates with with on the, on the mortgage side. But then they don't know exactly when the economy is going to slow. Is it going to be one quarter from now, you know, two quarters, whatever? But that was the big news this week because you've had, uh, you know, last week we had the Bank of Canada news coming out. We had the, the Federal Reserve yesterday, which, which was pretty amazing, actually, what happened there. We'll but we're that. all getting closer now to that inflection point, whether it's it's going to happen or, or it ain't going to happen. So... Yeah, I mean, the, you have the, the headlines screaming on Bloomberg here. Canada's economy starts to sputter as housing investment plunges. Uh, so rich GDP grew 2.9%. Uh, but that was kind of the headlines is the pullback in consumer spending, uh, number one. And number two is uh, residential investment, which is, you know, we're in GTA. So yeah. so we talked about that specific thing a couple of months ago. Um, one of the, the bubbles are always sort of revealed after the fact. Anyone who says otherwise is probably trying to sell you something. Uh, one of the ways that you could sort of assess that is gross fixed capital formation as a percentage of GDP, which is a fancy way to say investing. And this comes in all kinds of different ways. Uh, CapEx, uh, residential, non-residential CapEx, uh, uh, you know, research and development, intellectual property, whatever it is. Um, and we talked about how, you know, at 10% or 11% or whatever it was, as a percentage of Canada GDP, when you finally do get a slowdown, it would hurt. It would be a significant drag. And that's what, that's what we're seeing. As far as the GDP numbers, the contributions, should we go over that? Um, yeah. Okay. So there was like the government was a, an important contributor. That's not necessarily a bad thing always. Um, when you're going in, when you're in a slowdown, you want governments to step in. I, I don't know if Keith would agree with that Keynesian view of the world, but, um, and then the other thing, the other uh, part of the economy that really contributed was agricultural, but specifically oil. Obviously, Canada is the fourth largest producer of oil in the world. They produce five million barrels of oil a day. If it wasn't for oil, Canada would be totally, um, in trouble. And um, so that was that continued. Manufacturing activity is a thing. The other standout, um, non-durables, is also uh, really led the fall in tra and transport and equipment. The thing I have to pay off from last week was talking about um, GDP per capita. So that's the other thing. One way that you can hide um, an economy not necessarily doing well is if you just allow an incredible amount of people into your economy, which is exactly what's going on. Um, and I talked about uh, retail sales, which had fell. And then so, so I looked at retail sales per capita and we're basically flat. So what does that mean? So real retail sales, so retail sales adjusted for inflation, so adjusted for the increases in prices of our goods, has been flat per capita since 2018, which is really like, I know that 
that doesn't sound like a particularly like fascinating tidbit, but that's incredible. To just to, by comparison, the U.S. in that same period, so from the beginning of 2018 to now, real retail sales per capita is up 20 percent, which is remarkable, right? So that's just a total retrenching of what people are spending on, how much they're spending on. I mean, I don't. Um, I mean, it really is just a remarkable change, right? So. Like- how much of that spending, though, even in Canada, you say it's flat on a real adjusted basis, but how much of that is actually from people you know, having this wealth effect, their house going up, they can refinance it, they can tap the home equity line of credit. So like that, the fact that we've had like a bull market in housing and, and retail sales have still been pretty mediocre, to me, is a bit of a concern now going into a downturn with house, you know, people's largest asset the majority of their net wealth in Canada now declining. Yeah, I think I, I yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think it's a, it's really concerning. Again, you have really high debt levels. You have there's two sides to look at it. You really can paper over a lot of really shitty things in your economy if you just let in an incredible amount of people there. It just that's just them's the rules, right? That that's what happens. The problem is what matters is productivity growth per capita, and productivity growth is just another way of saying how much GDP does each individual person in your economy have? And that's, only, that's the only thing that matters in life is productivity growth. And we can see in, in, the, re, in the retail sales per capita, it's been flat. Boomer? Boomer? I'm waiting for the diffusion index to, to, <laughs> to, 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 to pop in here. Well, it's next. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sure it is. It's always, it's always coming. But uh, so talk a bit next, Rich, about you know, how the GDP number came out and what the reaction was to this number well i mean i guess it's it's it relates to i think i think why at the time i think the dollar sold off so what that means is it it affects interest rate expectations which affects the behavior that you might see from central banks so bare bones if you know your gdp is really good and the growth is doing really well then the central bank has confidence to raise uh, interest rates the short-term rate higher like all things being equal and so if that's true then you might get a reaction in the short term, whether it's certain stocks, but especially the currency, which is a real pure play on growth and interest rates. And that'll bounce, let's say, on our little Bloomberg machine. I can't afford the Bloomberg to Boomer. I have the cheaper version. but And you can literally see it. You're watching it tick along and you see the release at 9.30 or 8.30, whatever, and it just jumps in whichever direction you're looking at. Um, and what we saw that day was the dollar fell. So it went up, right, relative to... I know that's confusing, but currencies are always confusing. Something like that. <laughs> the, uh, but what, what I loved about that day in, in the Canadian marketplace, so um, I have currencies up on my screen all the time. I look at them before, like I have currencies, um, then commodities, equities, fixed income, and then volatility stuff. That's the way I look at things. And, and the day the Canadian dollar, it, it just got mullered there a few days ago. But when that was happening, the other currencies were also up relative to the dollar. So it was a double whammy on the Canadian dollar. So the question is, okay, why does why did that happen? So when, when the GDP number came out for Canada, and by the way, Canada also publishes monthly GDP number, whereas you know the Americans don't do that. It's just, it's just quarterly and everything. But it, it allowed us to see that while the economy is, is, it is slowing rapidly. And because of that, maybe this is going to give the Bank of Canada reasons to slow the rate increases or, or do something different. I think that brings us to our Twinkie bet, which is coming up yeah, you're, now. 
you really you really set me up. So we do have a Bank of Canada rate hike December seventh, seventh, sixth, seventh, seventh. That's another Twinkie. <laughs> it's the seventh, and um, so do you want to start it off with, sure. your, with your? Do I get to go first? Your, yeah, go for it. I set the market. You set the market. I think no, no. We, want to let, 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 we let the market oh, set right. the market. That's right. Let's let the do that. Set the market. So, so for everyone to realize, right now the market out there is expecting the the Bank of Canada yeah, raise rates. Say it. No, 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 no. Do it, Steve. Do no. it, Steve. Okay. All right. Ask the audience, Keith. Ask the audience, Keith. No, no. So, okay. Who thinks? Okay. The- Hands up. Who who believes the Bank of Canada will not raise rates next week? Raise your hands if you think they're cutting. Okay, we have all right. So no, no cuts, no raises. Okay, how about twenty-five basis points? What? So what I say it? that's thirty percent of the room, maybe 50, 50 basis points. Ooh. Okay, that's that's the Ooh. anyone more than fifty? A hundred. Right. Got a hundred, hundred. <laughs> here, one twenty-five, one twenty-five. One <laughs> quarter, one fifty. That sounded good, didn't it? That was good. Yeah. Okay, so let's review. Zero. Nobody wants the Conse- consensus in the room is fifty. Fifty. Okay, I'm going to go with the, the market. I'm going to go with consensus. You going? <laughs> you going fifty? Yeah. Why not? The, the, Mr. Market or Mrs. Market told me the answer. I'm going twenty-five. I'm going zero. Mm. Nacha. That's what I'm going with. So the, the reason I'm going zero. First of all, I love Twinkies, <laughs> right? <laughs> Who doesn't love a Twinkie? Like they're nice. You know, they're they're nice. Um, I think the Bank of Canada has reached the point where they now realize something is is, is funny out there. So uh, one one of my friends, he has a variable rate mortgage. When he bought the house, it was 1.2. Now it's at 5.2. So he got the call from the bank and they said, we want you to increase your rate by $2,700. So it's a big mortgage that he has. And he said, I can't do 2,700. That doesn't work. He said, we'll do 1,000. And they said, okay, we'll take a thousand. That's what happens though. But if if this was a few years ago when there's no like national level of of stress occurring, the bank would have said, no, 2,700 or we'll we'll foreclose. So again, it's another sign that banks are starting to see this happen. And so when I look at this, the Bank of Canada knows that, you know, the Federal Reserve had a similar story this week. I'm going to... I have the view that maybe the Bank of Canada, they're going to say, you know what, we're, we're now done. Or or it'll be 25 and then they're done. I think they've reached the maximum point you're paying because okay. they're getting the phone calls from, from the banks all the time. So I had an yeah. RBC employee message me this week. He said his he, uh, he's on a weekly payment structure. So interesting. But he's on a weekly payment structure at RBC. He's an RBC employee. Uh, his uh, very fixed payment variable mortgage went from a thousand dollars a month to seventeen hundred. So he just got the trigger. So, so an extra seven hundred dollars a week. It's a lot of money. A lot of money. Uh, but the problem, I think, I say I message him. I said, "Well, you have to actually like for RBC, for example, and some of these other banks, is you actually have to be proactive. So if you actually get ahead of it and like basically go online and like raise your payment, like they won't do it for you." It's when you do nothing, they'll just like, like you said, your friend, right? They just go, boom, that's what it is. But if you get out in front of it and actually do something, um, you have a little bit more flexibility there. Because I think we've talked about it before, but RBC's official sort of thing on that is as long as you're paying at least $2 per month towards principal, 
that's what you need to do. But like, we we're reaching a point now where like, what, what even, do you mean they're paying two dollars? What, what do you mean? So relative? you've got you've got a you've, let's say you got a monthly mortgage payment, and there is so much of it going towards interest. Right at some point, these rates increase are increasing so much that you're not even paying all of your interest. So the payment will obviously increase to pay all of the interest and two dollars worth of principal. So that's how they determine how much you need. But again, if you just leave it, they'll basically just arbitrarily pick a number and say, okay, well, like this is what we want. So, so I ask a question. Think, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, th- I think though next week with the Bank of Canada, it, it's it's their this their final rodeo. Yeah, that was my question. So that's that it. You're cool? do- you think they're done? I think they're done. Yeah. So like. I know we're not supposed to. Talk about I'm what, wrong a lot, by no, the way. I, so you I know, know I know. I, yeah. I speak to you every week. I know. Um, but the, I mean, I know we're not supposed to talk about what should, but I have a question. I mean, do you think that's what they should do? I think what they should do is apologize. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, Speaking of which. <laughs> so, so the R, no, the RBA, uh, the yeah, Royal Reserve, Bank, Reserve Bank of Australia, Australia, uh, the governor Phil Phil Lowe or something. Oh, I don't know and, his name. A good guy. Uh, he came out and uh, apologized to all the Australians. Um, I don't know if I have the quote in front of me, but anyways, he came out and apologized basically because similar, I think he said no rate increases during the onset of the pandemic till at least 2024. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, you know, that's a that's a mortgage market that has more floating rate mortgages than Canada. So everyone just, Australia is extremely levered. Their household debt situations is as bad or worse. House prices are egregious, and they have the same like debt uh, house price to income in like Sydney is like nine x or whatever, just like it is in Vancouver and Toronto, etc. Keep so, going, yeah. So just yeah, uh, and he came out and apologized. Came out and apologized. So, <laughs> nothing yet out of Tiff Mac. There's another quick. There's another quick Twinkie so, bed. Do you guys, we, we have a we'll come surprise out. guest this evening. <laughs> Tiff, come on out. Tiff, come out and apologize. <laughs> It'd be great if the door opened and he actually yeah. yeah load up the tomatoes. <laughs> so, but if they do cut next week, or they're sort of not cut. Sorry, if, if next week is their last active meeting or live meeting, we would call it, um, and, and then that that mean that's it. So they're not going to start cutting right away. But you know, in, in a normal cycle, they would stay where they are for about eight or nine months, and then they would start to cut. But when I look at this, like, you know, I, like, I like to talk how risk is synchronized around the world. So, you know, we have the Canadians up here. We have risk. The, the Aussies have it. The Japanese have a ton of it. You know, the, the, the fantasy land called Europe, you know, they're, they're doing their thing. And the Americans have their thing as well, which, we, which we'll go into next. But uh, I, I think next week might be it. That's, and that's an outlier call. Right now, the market is thinking 25 and then maybe another 25, yeah. I think, after that. There's a, that's at least 50 in, in the yeah in the whatever this the, the the market the futures market that predicts these kinds of things the backs the backs backs, backs. so bankers backs. acceptance contract is it I always screw up the acronyms honestly I can never so with the Fed obviously now running global monetary policy we've talked about the Bank of Canada you know you're saying they might just be done no no hikes at the next meeting maybe maybe it's 25 maybe it's, anyways we know that they're getting towards the end even tiff malcolm's come out and said you know it's it's probably time to start slowing things down rates need to go higher but we'll slow them down um what about like how do you i mean there's an outlook obviously in the canadian dollar which we'll get into assuming that they can't keep up with the fed but we also had jay powell out this week moving markets um basically saying that you know it's time to start assessing 
slowing down rate hikes. The markets clearly loved it. You know, stock market ripped. What is it? I think three percent the day the that he was chatting there. Um, I mean, what's your take on that? How are you interpreting Powell's comments? And and you know, from there, how do you think that impacts, say, the Canadian? I know you're a U.S. dollar bull. Yeah. So the uh, so so the Powell's comments this week. Um, it's my understanding it wasn't a scheduled meeting. He had the always had the option to do it. It was at the Brookings Institute in, in DC, uh, but he he came out with it, and the expectation was that he was going to come out like, extremely hawkish because there were other there were other uh, board members that were quite dovish over the last couple of weeks, especially, and and we know there is infighting taking place with, within the Fed and versus Treasury and everything. But but he came out only slightly hawkish, and it was very easy to see. Wow, like something has has changed dramatically. So uh, a lot of my friends, um, they're managing money in Europe, U.S., and places like that. Like we, we're all taken back. And we're trying to figure out where he, what what was happening here, and, and I think it comes back to uh, th- there is something called the Triffin's dilemma. I think we did we mention the Triffin's dilemma before. Wait, is, is that a bingo card? No way, no. that's on the bingo card. Well, there's line. the impossible trinity, which is my favorite pickup line. <laughs> That's a bingo. That's a bingo. Uh, so, so Triffin's dilemma. Uh, this guy Mark Triffin. I don't know his first name, but um, he, he he came out with uh, this this view years back that when a, a domestic currency is used as the world's reserve currency for everyone else. It's inevitable that at some point that there's going to be a, a conflict of interest between the domestic economy, sort of monetary policy that's needed domestically, versus what that policy will do for everyone else in the world. And, and I think that's exactly what happened this week. So I think the Fed, they received a, a call from, from someone else out there to say, hey, you you have to tone this down. Because right now, the Fed is still expected to raise, raise by 100 basis points. So right now they're expected to go 50 at the next meeting, then another 50. One of my good friends, he says they're going to do another 25 and 25 after that. I, I don't know if that will happen. But the expectations were for 75 at the next Fed meeting. And he clearly had to come out and, and, and pull things back. So if you look at it, is, is he going to pull things back because they think they've achieved the job of slowing inflation down? And, you know, Rich would tell us it's, that's probably doing its thing for us and, anyway. but. Right now, I mean, the stock market is not bad in, in America. So tech stocks are down quite a bit. What's the S&P down? 15%? We're, we're 4,000. So down 15%. Yeah. The Dow was down like maybe 6% now, like year to date. Um, so you have that happening. So not, nothing has has, has crashed or been crushed, right? So if, if they stop tightening now it's going to be identical to what happened with the americans in, in the early 80s when when paul volcker was 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 there and if, if people you're not familiar back then he raised rates by 300 basis points you know to, to stop inflation then he created a recession so he quickly cut rates by 300 basis points you know up and down and then he uh, created inflation again. This, I mean, this time that he went for four hundred. Like that's when he actually, you know, crushed inflation. So I think we reached a point this week where I look at what happened up here in Canada. We look at what's potentially happening in the UK and elsewhere. I think the Fed were told if you don't tone this down, something else is is going to break. 
But that's the, a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, right? Was like they're going to keep hiking rates until something breaks, and we got close to things breaking. I mean, things have certainly broken, you know, in the crypto market uh, and some of the more speculative areas. But you know, we looked at like the Japanese yen and and stuff like that, and that's 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 retraced a bit now. Yeah, one thirty five from one fifty. So, I mean, they're doing like they've kind of averted that crisis at least for now, and like even Canadian housing, right? Like it hasn't nothing's blown up. I mean. it's it's painful. Prices are down nationally 15%. Steepest correction in a couple decades, but nothing, well, I mean, one thing that broken. Did, one thing that did fall, which is important, which can I get into it, which is the USISM. So we've talked about this, my favorite thing, a diffusion index. That's got to be on the bingo card, right? That's got to be on the bingo card. Yeah, anyway. Um, so that came out today, um, which came out below 50. So 49.8 was expected. It came out at 49. Remember, 50 is the advanced decline line. So I mean, there are people who can argue that if you're in that little range between 48 and 52, it's not quite clear whether or not your economy is growing or contracting. If you just look at the press release, which is freely available to anyone online, if you just literally type in ISM PMI press release, you'll get it. And according to them, the whole economy is still growing. And this is where, uh, you know, the, the views that the Fed is like turned fully dovish or they won't raise to what they have, I think, what what's priced in, which is, you know, another hundred and whatever basis points. That's where I... I'm sort of take pushback on that. Um, although the manufacturing sector is, I mean, according to the ISM contraction, that's only 20%, maybe 25% of the US economy, generously. Um, the other being non-manufacturing or services. Um, parts of the manufacturing PMI that came out, which I, I think we're talking about are, you know, there's definitely some relief on the supply chain. So the way that they look at supply chain stuff is backlogs, um, order delivery, that kind of thing. But, um, and then there's some sectors that actually remain strong, which is a uh, construction sector for commercial stuff. Um, but I just think it's, and then here's the counter to that. Now I'm going to confuse everybody, including myself. Another PMI came out, I think it was yesterday, which is the sh uh, Chicago um, business barometer. Again, another diffusion index. And that basically, I mean, so, you know, it, there's been eight recessions in 1967. It's a monthly series. And every time that this series goes below 40, you basically have a recession in the United States. The only time that didn't happen is there was a recession in 1991 and it was at 41.2 or whatever it is. I don't know what the number. And, and there was a recession then. And so that's, the, but the, the, the key thing I think that the Fed is looking at is the labor market. And that's where I just think there's, unlike in Canada, where you have an incredible amount of immigration, which is keeping wages low. In the US, their population growth is at like a extremely, I can't remember the exact number, but it's very, very, very low. And wage growth is extremely high, especially in the first quartile, second quartile. So the poorest people, hourly wager, uh, wage earners, are their, their labor, their wage growth is as high as it's been probably in 20 years. And I just, and then we talked about inflation, the breadth measures, which, which, which we've discussed many times, which is like the CPI from Cleveland Federal Reserve, which is the median, which is, you know, the central tendency of that inflation is again, very, very, very high. So although I understand there's constraints on the Fed, I think that that labor market, um, which I understand people will say is a lagging indicator, is still is really strong. So it'll be, it would, it's coming out soon. If, I mean, it's the first week, first Friday of every month is the labor market, non-farm payroll number. So I think everybody's eyes will be on that number. And if that number disappoints, I'll, you know, I'll be wrong and then I'll change my view. But if that number is strong and, and you continue to have strong labor market, I think it'll really change people's view on, on Powell's comments. I don't know if you mentioned the Chicago PMI. Yeah, so 37. 
37.2. Sorry. Excuse yeah. me. That's what it came out. Below 40. So. Recession? I don't, I don't like to pick predict recessions. I think. Prediction for what? The, the diffusion index? <laughs> <laughs> we're, th- we're there. Are we? No. We- so are you getting, are you getting, Keith, are you, and we've talked about this before. I think we were talking about, uh, are bonds getting exciting again for you? You, you know, old guys love bonds. <laughs> Um, so the so, so two things the bond market. You always had to break it down between the, the government bond market. We call that duration, and then corporate bonds or, or credit. That that's what if you want to be cool, you you'd call it duration and credit. Uh, so we we actually bought duration twice over the last few months. So we're anticipating then that the economy is going to slow. We're going to move away from you know a, a crisis focus on government debt. And, you know, we, we'll make some money on that because money will flow into government bonds. And uh, so that's worked out well. And I think that is still the opportunity coming up in 23. If we do hit a crisis of some kind, like what happened in, in the UK, then, you know, you, you quickly you want to you switch that off. However, with credit markets, I think that's a disaster. So, so this year, for example... Um, long-term government bonds, they're down 20%, I think, in, in, in the U.S. Um, no, that's the Canadian number. And Canadian corporate bonds are down 10%. So if you're holding some kind of a bond strategy in your fund or something, you're, you're down maybe a, a mixture of, of two of those together. And you're being told, hey, no one saw this coming, and, and that's not true. And then you're being told that you know you're going to recover because the bond market's going to recover, and, and and that's not true either. It will eventually, but not yet. So I, I think in 23, the risk is that corporate debt performs very poorly. So right now we have the stock market is going up, and credit spreads are, are not moving that much with it. So if the stock market is going up because optimism returning, companies will make more money, means they can pay off their bonds with less risk of default and everything. So credit spreads should should start to tighten. And and that's I'm not seeing that over the last So I I, week. I agree. I think it's a really important because I think this is why I'm really we talked about this I think two weeks ago. We said, you know, both the bond market and the stock market were going up in tandem. And we then we we actually God help us. We agreed. We said one of the two of them is probably wrong. And we both ag- agreed that the uh, stocks were wrong in the sense that we're worried. We don't, we don't, we don't buy. We don't buy the fact that they've gone from, you know, 36, whatever hundred on the S&P 500. I use that by the way, just because it's, it's, it's the most popular index. And, and it's it sounds, to, sounds pretty cool. Too. It also, <laughs> if you can tell out an index number. Yeah. That's, that's and then now we're at 4,000 and then it's basically just track. It's amazing. I put this chart, I, I published this chart today and it just basically just tracks the in- interest expectations. And the reason it's tracking interest rate expectations is because there's no earnings. And those earnings are linked to things like the ISM, PMI and business barometer from Chicago. Um, and then, so you're starting to see ratchet, ratchet higher, but it, I just, the higher it goes, the less convinced I am, especially if we, if what we think is going to happen plays out, which is get a slower economy. So, so what's interesting now, if, if the stock market starts taking off again, going straight up, that, that that's inflationary. So all of a sudden you have that happening and the, the central banks like the Fed, they're going to say, whoa, we, 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 we don't want that. It's happening too quickly. They'll have to crush it. If the stock market doesn't go up and we hit a deep recession, 
then that means the bond market is, is going to be right. It's going to do very well. And then all of a sudden, the Fed is going to say, okay, this is exactly what we want, but we're going to let it go on a bit more. So even though we have a really good rally right now in, in, in the equity markets, I think a lot of people are looking forward to that for year end because you get your statement and you're, you're going to peek at it to see what it looks like. Uh, so I know a lot of people are, you know, pretty excited about it. It's kind of interesting. There's, there's a good story. Um, I was walking through the, the path there this afternoon and um, we, we had we had asked for directions to come here, of course. That's, that's the bad part. The good part of, of this story, um, the guy we were, we were walking with, I said, um, I said, where are you from? He said, New Brunswick. And I said, wow, you know, I'm from Halifax. And we sort of had a good chuckle about it. And then we're, you know, he had a big bag. He was towing along with him. And I said, what do you do? What's your profession? And he said, well, actually, I'm, I work for the pension fund in, in New Brunswick. And um, so we went back and forth with all that. And I said, well, how's your year? Like, what what, what was happening? And he said, well, you know, it, it's been it's been a struggle. You know, of course, you know, we, we all know that. And uh, it was just interesting seeing the body language, you know, the, the, the fact that everyone will admit it has been a struggle. But the other thing that the comment that I liked, I said, well, how was your private equity? You know, their numbers are actually quite good. You know, they're saying they're, well, they're, they're not positive. marked to market. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I said, how are they marks on private equity? He said, oh, well, they're really good, of course, right? So there, there we go. Sorry, mark to market, just for people who don't understand, is is um, every day when you have it, a portfolio. By the way, Keith's done really, really well. So congratulations, Keith. You, you did not suffer that faith. You had a really good year this year in the sense. So Keith can see just how well and or badly he's doing virtually to the second um, I'm not delayed 15 minutes like me because I can't afford Bloomberg. But uh, whereas pr uh, private equity, they mark their book, right? The the their portfolio of assets, whether you know it's the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund investment in a nefarious uh, blockchain company or whatever, they only mark that. Let's say not shake pay, <laughs> not shake pay, and they only mark that maybe once a quarter, maybe once a year, in some cases even longer. And so, of course, they're not quite clear with. Of course, they had a great year. They haven't, you know, they haven't marked down there because this bonus time coming up. You need, you need a good year, Rich. Why don't you talk a bit about next? Uh, what's happening well, in the ESG space? Well, so so on the uh, well, Steve doesn't want to do this now. Well, I mean, it's the same thing in the in the MIC Mortgage Investment Corp space. It's like mark to market. They don't, you know, they guarantee you an eight percent return, but you know, the the loan to value and all those loans is obviously eroding. So. What, what is that? Sorry, explain. What on the, the on the private in the private lending space in Canada, which is okay. extremely popular, right? Like, I mean, actually, one of the trades was like you would take out a home equity line of credit at four percent and the lows, and you'd put it into this mortgage investment corp, and they'd guarantee you an eight percent return, right? They would pay out these distributions, so that was quite popular. Um, but again, those aren't mark to market. So, um, the speaking thing, one last thing on the on the bond market before we switch gears. So the all important Canada five year government bond yield uh, down eighty basis points now. Just looking at the ticker right now, basically back down to three percent. So, I mean, in, in a month, it's 80, 80 basis points. Uh, fixed mortgages are down about fifteen basis points. Uh, over the last week, U.S. mortgage rates are off the highs as well. Yeah, and then also we had HSBC, it, and that's why I think the Bank of Canada maybe they don't have to hike rates again. I think they're because if they hike rates, then they'll have a, a, a an extremely inverted yield curve. That, that that's what's going to happen. And I think they're realizing that you know maybe it's 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 enough. So we'll see. But yeah, so that's a good point. So I had this conversation with my client the other day, and and in a sense that the bond market has done some of the cutting for them is another way of saying it. 
which is what Steve said. Well, I mean, uh, we're getting news now that uh, for people that are really focused on like the mortgage space and interest rates and stuff like that, uh, watch the news that's coming out between RBC purchasing HSBC. So HSBC has always been the leader in the mortgage market. They've undercut every single Canadian bank. On average right now, their advertised rates 40 basis points lower uh, than, than RBC, for example, who's now going to be purchasing things. So you'll remember at the very, very... Uh, peak, I guess, or or the bottom in in mortgage rates. Uh, HSBC was aver- uh, advertising a five year fixed rate mortgage for insured mortgages at zero point nine nine percent. That was the bottom. HSBC had that, so they've always undercut everybody. So when RBC buys them, um, I think you probably see those discounting go away. Um, so that's probably next year. But anyways, that's that's a conversation for another time. Uh, Rich and I were at the bar last night uh, when Keith was was having his beauty sleep, and you know we were chatting about this and you know talking about the Looney Hour podcast and and the great support that we have. And you know we were saying we we feel an obligation at this point to to speak. The truth. To, 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 we have a platform, and we want to, you know, we want to speak out about things that we feel we're passionate about that are going to enhance our country. Um, you know, the Canada is a, a small country, right? And what thirty-seven million people, roughly. Like, and there's not a lot of economic and fine finance podcasts out there. So there's things that when we see, we want to talk about. And sometimes it's you know we try not to get too much into politics. But one of the things we were chatting about last night was. With some of the ESG stuff, and I actually had a, uh, I roasted one of the Vancouver politicians on Twitter um, last week, but it was just about some, you know, about the home heating and and we need to get rid of all these gas furnaces and we need to put in heat pumps while people are dying on the streets, freezing. There's no homes, and you're telling people to go out and spend ten thousand dollars on a heat pump so they don't burn natural gas. And and so yeah, I mean, I you know now we're seeing other things in the markets that have your attention. So so take it away. I mean, I've been holding on to this one for a long time because I know I'm going to get myself into trouble. So ESG for people who may not understand is environmental social governance, and this is a lens by which institutional investors, specifically, and some retail investors, look at their portfolios. Now. In, in sort of abstraction, envir- looking at a company through the lens of environmental or social or governance, you know, issues is not in and of itself a bad thing. You know, you may not want to own a company that produces cluster bombs or has slave labor or has very lax environmental standards. The problem, of course, arises when you have misaligned incentives, which is acute in an institutional investment space. And an opportunity for these institutional investments to milk their unknowing clients out of an incredible amount of money. Um, and so the way that these companies do, and I may or may not have worked for a company that did this, is effectively charge an incredible amount of money right, um, in the form of a management expense ratio. So when you're buying the S&P 500, which is an extremely, extremely liquid product that everybody can trade, you, you, when you buy a, a BlackRock ETF, you, you pay BlackRock 10, 20 basis points, an, in, an insignificant sum really. But if you, you know, but then when they slap this ESG label on it, they charge that client 
200 basis points, 160 basis points, 250 or whatever it is. And people, well-meaning people who think, you know what, I care about the environment. Climate change is a really important problem. I'm going to go and buy this um, index or ETF which has a label that says ESG on it. And then unwilling, unwittingly, you are paying an incredible amount of money for a product that A, may or may not perform any differently than a product that is not ESG. B, might literally have the exact same stocks that, and so basically there is no difference except just literally on the fact sheet that it will just say ESG. Um, I'll give you an example. I, I, can I say the name of the ETF? I'm going to say the name of the ETF. There's a vegan ETF. Now, whether or not you're vegan is relevant. That's, that's a value judgment. I mean, it's none of my business. What I think is my business to say is if you look at the top 10 holdings of this vegan ETF, now it might have changed. I looked at this six months ago, so forgive me if I've screwed this up. But the top 10 holdings of that vegan ETF were basically the tech companies. And so for years and years and years, it was outperforming and people could say, oh, well, the vegan ETF is doing spectacularly well. Well, because we just had a freaking bull market of epic proportions in tech. And if you look at the vegan ETF, it's Google, Tesla, um, Visa, MasterCard, which are industrial companies. Don't ask me why. Um, Microsoft, Google, whatever. And then if you look at the tech sector ETF for the S&P 500, it's literally the same in the same order of weights. But the management expense ratio for this ETF was something like six or seven times. So imagine you're a vegan, again, no value judgment, but you care deeply about these issues and that's your prerogative. And you go and Google something that reflects your personal values and you're getting absolutely fleeced because most people don't look at the holdings of the ETFs they have. A nerd like me will obsess about these things, but regular people won't. And so that's one way in which case, in which way I think that institutional investors are absolutely making a mockery of this. There's another way, which is, and it relates to what's going on in Florida and in Texas. So you may not know, Florida and Texas are run by really wonderful people who, anyways, not necessarily my politics, but that's besides the point. What they do have is an incredible amount of money and they have a right, in a sense, to demand that the people who run that money execute their fiduciary duty to the best of their ability, which is to maximize the return for their stakeholders, nurses, doctors, bus drivers, whatever it is. So Florida, I think, has a $218 billion US dollar pension fund. I can't remember what it is. And $2 billion of that is allocated to BlackRock, which is run by this guy named Mr. Fink, who's obsessed with green energy and ESG and all this stuff. And more recently, what the Florida... Um, what Florida has done is basically canceled that contract. They said, we're taking that money away from you. And there's a couple of reasons. One, it's because Florida is run by a particularly interesting guy. But the more important point is that the, the, because these, these, these funds have so much power and they execute on a very narrow worldview. Now, again, it's not necessarily, I'm not making a value judgment on that worldview, but the key is, you know, it's not your job as a manager necessarily to take a worldview and then push that down onto your um, investors. And the same thing happened in Texas. So Texas, the attorney general of Texas and a bunch of other people have written a letter to, and you can read it, it's widely available online, where they challenge the, the nature of the relationship that BlackRock has with its clients, suggesting in no uncertain terms that they're not 
fulfilling their mandate, which is to maximize their returns on investors. E.g., they're not owning energy, for example. Energy is the best performing sector and best performing subsector in the last 18 months because oil is very useful and it's not going away. And, you know, for example, the U.S., which didn't sign up to the Paris Agreement, has lowered its emissions more than Europe, by the way. Um, but you know these investors refuse to own this subsector for whatever reason. And there's all kinds of contradictions, which I think I can't get into, or else Keith and Steve will you know push me off the stage. I'll be happy to talk to you guys about that later. But the more important thing I think we're seeing is once sort of the cat's out of the bag and you see these expense ratios are not justified by the performance, which by the way is widespread, I think you're starting to see less people finally wake up and go, you know, you know, yes, should we move away from fossil fuels? Sure, but just blanketly ignoring entire subsectors and categories of investments because of a narrow worldview, I think is a very, very tricky thing and only works in a bull market. Well, we've we've talked a lot about, you know, the energy crisis is developing in Europe, a lot of it being self-inflicted. Absolutely self-inflicted. Um, you know, Canada is abundant in resources and, and we certainly have, you know, a lot of farmers, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Alberta. et cetera. Uh, one of the things that you've been watching just to kind of wrap it up here is, uh, you know, what's been happening with the Dutch farmers, which is, I mean, Rich, you, I think you, you've been following this better than anyone. So I'll let you sort of comment on that to sort of wrap things up. But I think that's extremely important because if you're, if you're a Canadian farmer, uh, you, you, you just have to watch that and say, hmm, okay, that's interesting. That's happening in another part of the world. Could that potentially come here? And how does that impact my business, my investments, my life? Like, what does that mean for us? I mean, yeah. So Netherlands, um, which is the second largest um, exporter of food and foodstuffs, so like agricultural products, tulips, meat, whatever, in the world. So it's U.S., Netherlands, I should have remembered the third one, I forgot. Um, and and they are an incredibly productive and efficient, frankly, and useful producer of agricultural products. They're in the EU and the EU has very, very clear standards and directions on emissions and very specifically nitrogen. And nitrogen is used as a fertilizer, a chemical fertilizer to fertilize the land. Now, you can make arguments about we should move away from nitrogen in abstraction is probably true. But the thing is, is in order to, to, to execute on this plan to reduce nitrogen that's being produced in this country, an extremely productive country, by the way, that's a liberal democracy that will, that like shares its goods. I mean, it trades its goods, et cetera. They are forced um, it's land, land is being appropriated. They're forcing the sale of now I've read numbers between 600 and, and 3000 farms um, in these quote unquote, you know, sensitive areas. Um, and I think that's crazy, right? Because the idea that this, like this, you know, this idea that the meat or the products, not necessarily meat, there's like all kinds of different vegetables that is not going to be produced is wrong. What will happen Will just happen. It will just be a repeat of what happened in two thousand one. So there will be an arbitrage, and the products will still be made. They just won't be made in the countries that care about the environment, which is this is the the big mistake, right? Or about labor market. Uh, sorry, labor rules. So like no, you know, like paying people decent wages and paying pension, healthcare costs, and stuff. Because I make no mistake, the the meat will be consumed. Meat consumption globally is going like that. That's not changing. 
um, the, the foodstuffs will be consumed. They just won't be produced in this like narrow little region called we call Netherlands. They'll be produced in countries that basically, in my view, don't give a shit about the environment or less. And, and so th- we're seeing that in the Netherlands and we've seen smatterings of it in Canada. Um, you know, and it's just, it, it upsets me because it's, again, it's under this very dogmatic view of, of how emissions is created, where it should be created. Um, you know, just, and I'm not going to get into the China thing this week. We'll save it for next week, but it's just, it's amazing. I think it's important that we all sort of are aware of what, what's going on. Like does, should Netherlands adjust the way it produces and uses nitrogen? Yes, of course it should. It probably should slow down. But the idea that the second most productive and efficient exporter of food should just turn on a dime and that won't have severe consequences for Europe, which is having its own struggles in the fantasy land of Europe. Or I just think, I don't know, maybe I've gone a lost bit of my point here. I think it's just, it's, it's frustrating for me. And it's all related to this sort of ESG mindset and it's sort of, sort of a kind of superficial view of these very, very difficult challenges that we need to face. Um, yeah, that, that's, I guess that's it. Yeah, I mean, I think big big change is happening. And obviously, it's a Canadian-focused podcast, but we do have to look around the world to sort of understand uh, how we can be influenced and, and how this may impact our investments and our lifestyles. And and uh, so I think it's all extremely important. So I think it's a good place to wrap it up. Um, as always, we appreciate your support. Thank you so much for coming out. Thank you for coming. And see you next week.